Today is an interesting day for me. As I was assigned this text in James chapter 3, I immediately laughed a little bit and said, it's awfully convenient that the text on taming the tongue comes to the guy who often has uh, trouble keeping his words in his mouth, who as a young boy was uh, regularly reprimanded for things that I would say off the cuff. So when I come to this text today, by no means am I coming as an expert. I'm coming as a learner. But I'm grateful for God's Holy Spirit and for his holy word that instructs us on these topics. In his book titled Taming the Tongue, Jeff Robinson recalls a story of the great English preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon. At just the age of 22, uh, his ministry had grown quite a lot. Uh, the, the church they were meeting in was too small for the crowds that were coming to, to see him. And on October 19th, 1856, the 22-year-old Spurgeon and his church rented out this giant music hall, the Great Surrey Garden Music Hall in London, so that thousands could flock to see him. This, this place held more than 10,000 people, and even thousands remained outside, but with open windows, they remained out there hoping just to hear something the great young preacher had to say. In the midst of this season, Spurgeon was in some controversy among other ministers. There's get enough ministers around there. You can always expect a little controversy. And there were some plants in the crowd. And as Spurgeon began his opening prayer before the sermon, there was a shout from the balcony, fire! Another shout, the galleries are falling! And one more, the entire building is going to collapse! This created immense chaos, and the whole balcony and those under it rushed to the exits. Seven people were trampled to death. Another 20 or more with life-threatening injuries. After this, Spurgeon went into deep anxiety and depression over this event. Just a few simple phrases led to immense destruction. Words really matter. We're all familiar with the phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And as much as we desire that that phrase be true, our memories of hurtful, critical, difficult, discouraging words will not allow us to lie to ourselves. This led one therapist to write a book, Sticks and Stones May Break My Bones, but words can hurt forever. Words have power to tear down and power to build up. Maybe you can remember some powerful encouragement from a teacher, a friend, a coach, a director. Those words led you to propose to your spouse, to apply to that job, to move to that city, to try out for that team. Words have immense ways of encouraging us, but maybe you can also remember some Difficult, constructive, terrible words. Even some, a phrase that was meant to be a throwaway comment, but ended up landing on you as a dagger to the heart. I can remember comments when I was five years old that have stuck with me that were difficult. You can remember words that have caused division among families, split up marriages, ended relationships, made friendships difficult, all over a few words. 
See, in our current sermon series through the book of James, we're confronted with the challenge of being consistent in our faith. To be a Christian means that one recognizes that they have been created by God and for God, that they are made in his image. But the bad news is that every human being, all mankind, has rebelled against this holy and righteous God and now deserves death and condemnation in his right wrath because of sin. But God in his mercy and his grace sent his son Jesus Christ to live the perfect life on our behalf and to die the death that we deserve. And after his death on the cross, he rose again three days later, proving that, he, uh, that his death on the cross was satisfactory for sin. And now all who respond in faith and repentance are granted new life, salvation from their sin. But that gospel, responding to that by faith alone, creates change then in our lives. James says this faith should make a difference with what we say, with our words, and with our works, with our actions. Our pastoral resident, Joel Zook, reminded me this week that James chapter 1, verse 26 serves as the thesis statement for the entire letter. James writes, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion is pure. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their afflictions and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Pastor Mike led us masterfully through an important text in James chapter 2 last week, connecting faith and works. He said that faith without works is dead and cannot save. These works themselves do not save us. It is faith alone, but this faith works. This faith creates a tra change and a transformed heart given by the Holy Spirit to work itself out in us. And one of the primary works that changes upon our trust in Jesus is our words, what we say. So the title of today's text, or today's message, is Faith and Words and its connections. As we turn to James chapter 3, verse 1, we'll see this connection between faith and words. Turn your Bibles there to James 3. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. One of our hosts will gladly provide you with a Bible. You can find James 3 on page 978, 978 in your text. Never feel bad about looking to the table of contents. If you're new to looking at a Bible, just find the book of James in the table of contents and turn there. Um, and if you're, again, new to looking at a Bible, the big numbers on the page are chapter numbers. So we're in James chapter 3, and the small numbers are verse numbers. So James 3, beginning in verse 1, if you would please stand with me and honor the Word of God as I read from James chapter 3, verse 1. This is the English Standard Version. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds and are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs, so also... The tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, yet setting, the fire, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being 
can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. This is God's word. You may be seated. So as we see this connection between faith and words, well, our main point today is this. Your words reveal your faith. So watch your heart. Your words reveal your faith. So watch your heart. I have two points today, two warnings from this text, and each point has two subpoints. There, if you're trying to follow along. The first is a warning to teachers or aspiring teachers, and the second is a warning to the entire church. And as we look at this, we'll notice how our words reveal our faith. So first, a warning to teachers. Your life and your words have power. Look at verse 1. James starts with this warning. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. This warning is directed at the teaching ministry of the entire church. It isn't merely given to church leaders. It's given to the, all who teach within the context of the church. But it's also, uh, it's also directed at church leaders uh, in one sense as well. So it's, but it's really to the whole church and all who teach. One commentator notes that James is cautioning against, uh, or not cautioning against teaching generally. He is concerned with people recklessly taking up the teacher's mantle in the church. And the caution here is because, verse 2, that we will be judged with greater strictness. Why is, why is James, why is God so hard on those who teach? Well, two reasons. Here's our two subpoints. The first one, the integrity of the message is connected to the integrity of the messenger. The integrity of the message is connected to the integrity of the messenger. James 2, or James 1, or 3, verse 2, For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his body. The Christian Standard Bible connects this quite well. When, he's, when uh, they translate, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is mature. James' point here is that a mature person marks what they say. They're careful. They, they, they think through their words before they speak. That's a mature person. And we recognize that all of us are still growing in maturity and how we use our words. Even the, the most quiet among us will have the occasional slip of the tongue. And I could share plenty of stories where I've had my own bouts with foot in mouth disease. We could, go day, or, uh, we could go on the rest of the time for stories where Zach thought he was going to be funny and it ended up not connecting so well. The ability to bite one's tongue, though, reveals much maturity. It reveals that there's wisdom in that person's life, that they can bridle their whole lives as well. And we all stumble and misspeak at times, but the concern of this text is that a doctrinally or morally flawed teacher could lead many people into error. And the Bible speaks about the integrity of the message and the integrity of the messenger. Elders and pastors are the, is the office in the local church where, that are uh, primarily concerned about the teaching role of the church. 
and the qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, the only gift that is necessary in those lists is that that person, that man, be able to teach. All of the rest of those attributes are character traits. It's about the integrity of their life. But even some of those attributes are about how they use their words. An elder should be self-controlled and not quarrelsome. Words really matter in the teaching office. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul warns young Timothy to not be too hasty in, uh, in calling new pastors and elders so that they're able to watch their life so that their words and their life match. He connects that well in 1 Timothy 4 where Paul writes to Timothy saying, keep close, keep close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Watch your life in your doctrine because the integrity of the message is connected with the integrity of the messenger. It's sad how frequently it seems that a teacher's life, life uh, her, his or her life and their message don't quite connect. Sadly, we could rattle off several high-profile Christian leaders in the last several years who have made shipwreck of their faith and of their lives. The inner aspects of their life were full of abuse, mistreatment, harassment, and pride. They boasted of great things, yet their life revealed that their words really didn't matter. This has led many people to be skeptical of pastors or any Christian leaders. And uh, we shouldn't allow that warning to just be lobbied at those outside of these walls. No, we as leaders, anyone who teaches in this church must heed that caution as well, that we will be judged with greater strictness. Because the message matters. This isn't true just for the pulpit, but for the Sunday school class. This is true in grace groups and women's groups and youth ministry and all those who teach. Heed that caution that our lives matter. There's a reason for this. Our second point in this point, under number one, is that a teacher's words have tremendous power. The integrity of the message is connected with the integrity of the messenger and because a teacher's words has tremendous power. As a good teacher or writer, James provides vivid illustrations to communicate his point. He uses horses and ships to show his readers how great and mighty things are governed or controlled by small members. Look at verse uh, 3 and 4. He writes, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. While automobiles are very commonplace in our day and age, we need to recognize that they were not even invented until the late 1800s. So up until that point, the horse was recognized as the, this powerful beast. It recognized military might and power. Uh, Psalm 20, verse 7, contrasts trust in the Lord with trust in chariots and horses. If you had more horses and chariots, you were more likely to win a battle. But even this great beast, this horse, could be controlled, domesticated, and steered by a mere bit in its mouth. Every good county fair celebrates and recognizes all different kinds of horses, uh, Delaware County itself boasts of the little brown jug, the, one of the legs of the triple crown of harness racing. I've watched teenagers in, uh, in small fair rodeos steer a horse, a large horse, through an obstacle course in barrel races. I've seen teams of draft horses in Clydesdales be held back by the mere pull of the reins, by a mere bit in its mouth. 
Consider the great ships of the world. Imagine even before steamboats and all that, that these ships would be powered by winds to cross the great seas, but a mere rudder is what steered that ship. Great things are empowered by small members. And the tongue is that small member for us. That's why James drives home his illustration with his point in verse five. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. See, we see that word boast in verse five, and we might immediately think it's negative because that word is, um, it just has that connotation in our own mind. But I, I agree with commentator Doug Moo, who says in this context, the word boast is likely more, uh, more nuanced than that. It's more indifferent that we boast of great things. Our words have tremendous power to tell wondrous stories, to tell wonderful truths. Think of the reaction we just had in here at the news that COVID restrictions would be lifted. Some people weeped this week, tears of joy, thinking things were getting to some level of normalcy. We celebrated news that was proclaimed from us. The tongue boasts of great things. And Christianity, friends, is a religion of proclamation. We talk about things. God himself spoke the universe into existence by the voice of his own word. So let it be. The prophet spoke oracles of God. Jesus himself began his ministry proclaiming the gospel and went about town to town preaching good news. The apostles waited for the Holy Spirit and upon his arrival, they spoke on God's behalf. And we now go into all the world empowered by the ministry of the Holy Spirit to proclaim the good news of the gospel that Jesus has come, lived, died, risen, and is coming again and that all who respond to that news will be saved and granted righteousness with God. Anyone who speaks on God's behalf, anytime we open our mouths to say what the scriptures say, to say how someone can have life in Christ, that is powerful news that we proclaim with our mouths. We must take it seriously. Every Sunday morning on our way to church, as a family, we pray for our church gathering, for those who teach, and especially for whoever's preaching that Sunday. So on the weeks that I preach, I got to ask somebody else to pray. So uh, I asked Jake, our oldest, would, would you pray for me, buddy? And he said, sure. And as he's praying, he's praying for another pastor as well. And he said, I, I pray that daddy wouldn't get scared. Great prayer, right? Many people have asked, do you ever get nervous to speak in front of people? And the honest answer to that is yes, sometimes. There's always a bit of nervousness that, that comes. You get used to that after a while. But I don't think I'm being extra spiritual when I say it this way, though. I often respond this way, that I'm really not all that concerned or I'm really not all that nervous about you guys. I can easily delete your critical email without ever opening it. <laughs> what should terrify any preacher is that we're going to be judged with greater strictness. That when we say, thus saith the Lord, we better be right. That when we say that this is the only way to be saved, we better be certain. 
that we better not be too casual with what God has said, because if we're too casual with that, we can lead many others astray. My biggest fear is that you actually listen to me. And if you do something that God hath not said, you'll be judged for that, but I'll be even more accountable. We need teachers who proclaim, and we need to be proclaimers, but we must not take that too lightly. So to any teacher in this church, any aspiring teacher, in whatever sphere you teach, grateful for those who teach in Grace Kids, grateful for those who lead youth ministries, grateful for those who teach in our women's ministry, grateful for those who lead grace groups. We need those leaders. So friends, don't take this caution here as an excuse to say, I'm not messing with that. We cannot make disciples if we do not open our mouths to say what the book says, to declare what the gospel is. To make disciples of all nations, we must be those who speak about these things. But for any of us who teach or any aspiring teacher, what are your motivations in speaking? Do you think you're getting some extra credit? Do you get the front of the line with God or with people? What are your motivations? Is your desire to teach primarily for because you think you're a gifted teacher? Have others affirmed that in you? Is it just about your own good or is, is the teaching for the good of others who hear you? And if your unwillingness to teach is out of a, a laziness, desire to not prepare or to be trained to teach, that's also disobedient this text. So there's a warning to teachers because the teaching ministry of the church drives the whole engine of it all. If we're not teaching truth here, nothing else we do really matters. So pray for those who teach that we would always be faithful to the word, that we'd always be faithful to the gospel. There's a warning to teachers because your words have power. And now the second warning, there's a warning now to the whole church because your words reveal your hearts. A warning to the church, your words reveal your hearts. Two points again. Our words reveal our sinfulness. And secondly, our words reveal our doubleness. Our words reveal our sinfulness and our words reveal our doubleness. First, our words reveal our sinfulness. Look at verse five. Second half, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. Tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Look at the terms that James uses here to describe this. A fire, the tongue is a fire, it's a world of unrighteousness, it stains, which notice James chapter 1 talks about Pure and unfiled religion is to, not be, is to be unstained from the world. But the tongue reveals how stained we really are. We're setting on fire the whole course of life. It's set on fire by hell. See, our sinfulness is coming out in how we talk. Paul speaks of this as he stacks up these Old Testament texts in Romans chapter 3 to reveal the depths of our depravity. Romans 3, verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. 
No one does good, not even one. Verse 13, their throat is an open grave. The throat, the, the mouth is an open casket to see sin. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. The mouth, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. See, our words reveal what's really going on inside of us. In Matthew 15, Jesus says this, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. That undefiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Notice how many of those include your words. Our mouths cannot help but proclaim what is in our hearts. Our mouths cannot help but proclaim what is in our hearts. Maybe after some bad talk, someone said to you, do you kiss your mother with that mouth? This is what leads James to say, every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. James is telling us that it is easier for SeaWorld to train whales to jump through synchronized hoops at the same time than it is for us human beings to tame our tongue. It is easier for lions, tigers, and bears to go against their animal instincts than it is for human beings to not speak what is in our hearts. They reveal our sinfulness. One famous example of this is from the, the great Christmas movie, The Christmas Story. Ralphie is helping his father change a tire outside. He has the parts waiting in there in his hand, and his father accidentally hits the parts, and they go flying off into the snow. And immediately, Ralphie responds with a certain word, the word that even this most scandalous sailor might keep close to the vest around his mother. Upon getting home, Ralphie's told to go to the bathroom, and the next scene is just him chewing on a bar of soap. <laughs> See, but brothers and sisters, no amount of bar soap therapy can clean our hearts. That might be a good consequence for anyone who can't tame their tongue. But there's a heart connection that we have to go off that our mere words are simply revealing about us. See, our words are like the warning signs of a heart attack. They're serious. But your chest pain is simply reveals there's something even deeper going on in your life. Our words come from our hearts. They're, they're missiles out of our hearts from which all sin springs. It springs from the heart. Therefore, we need a new heart. See, James likens this to a spark that catches a, a wildfire. It, it's, it's, you know, thousands, hundreds of acres have been burned at the mere throw of a cigarette butt. A spark from a, from a campfire that gets awry and lands on dry grass and spreads throughout. See, our words spread like that. They create dissension. They create division. They, they show forth sin all over us. And in proverb after proverb, there's this, this dichotomy between the righteous and the wicked and how they use their words. Proverbs 10 verse 11 illustrates this well. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceives violence. Proverbs 18 verse 6, a fool's lips walk into a fight. His mouth invites a beating. 
A fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are a snare to his soul. See, we, we might try to, to get around some of the things that we say by saying things like, you know, I just had to get that off my chest. I'm just being honest. I don't mean the gossip, but. I'm not saying, I'm just saying. See, but behind those phrases, what we're doing is simply putting a cloak around the hatefulness in our own hearts, the slander of our own hearts, the sin of our own hearts that is destructive. This is why the Bible says we need new hearts. And part of the promise of the new covenant in Ezekiel 36, 26 promises that upon faith and trust in Jesus, he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove this heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all of my rules. See, when a, when a Christian, when, when someone confesses that Jesus alone is the way to be saved, they're granted by a gift of the Holy Spirit a new heart upon that confession. And brothers and sisters, if you're not a Christian in here today, I'm so grateful that you're here. And you might even be thinking now that the words of your heart or the words of your mouth reveal the sinfulness of your own heart. That your words have been the, the source of division or strife or slander. And you're recognizing that you can't control your tongue. And brothers and sisters, I ask that you'd repent and trust in Jesus. Through whom you, your, everything in your life springs. So that you might be given a new heart. If that's the case for you, then you can... Read Titus 3 like it's your own testimony. For we ourselves were once foolish and led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not by works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. See, our words reveal our sinfulness, and it reveals that we need the new birth. But the warning, though, goes further, goes further to those who have already claimed to trust in Christ to say that our words now, not only do they reveal our sinfulness, our words reveal our doubleness. Look at verse 9. With it, that as our mouths or our tongues, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. For from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. You've heard it said, do what I say, not what I do. But here the speaker, the teacher, is actually saying contradictory things. James is saying you can't be a double-minded person and follow Jesus. You can't claim to be a Christian and merely hear the word and not do it. You can't claim to be a Christian to understand the gospel and show favoritism. You can't claim to be a Christian and there not be a transformed life living out in your every day. And now he says you cannot sing God's praises and tell your neighbor to go to hell. That's what that, cur that word curse means. With the same mouth, we say, praise Jesus. And then we slander a brother. Those mask wearers. Those leaders don't have any clue what they're doing. With the same mouth, we pray in Jesus' precious name. 
and then we cuss out our kids. With the same fingers, we advocate for the unborn and marginalized. But in the next tweet, we tweet hatred with those with whom we disagree. Brothers and sisters in Christ, these things ought not be so. James is saying this doubleness is inconsistent with a true follower of Jesus. And he illustrates this again by going straight to the heart, straight to the source. He says, verse 11, does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives and grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond produce fresh water. We hear the echo of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount saying, you will recognize them by their fruits. It's, it's like with, with someone, when someone meets a Christian, they're expecting to get the sweet nectar, the sugar of life, and yet it's as if someone puts salt in their coffee. We're expecting one thing and we get another. And for those who have trusted Christ, we're expecting truth and we're also expecting grace. It's inconsistent. Friends, I'm pained when I hear of how Christian couples talk to one another. A wife's disrespect, a husband's lack of sensitivity. These things ought not be so. I'm saddened when I hear of gossip or slander within the body of Christ. Slander against the leader. For the Christian, these things ought not be so. I'm pained when I hear of students who are bullied, picked on, maligned. And for the Christian, these things ought not be so. I cringe at posts on social media by so-called mature believers who slander, demean, belittle, and disrespect online. Brothers and sisters, for the Christian, these things ought not be so. See, James roots all of that in the image of God. You praise your Lord and Father and then you curse someone made in God's image. See, the doctrine of the image of God means that every human being, regardless as to their choices, regardless as to their sins or decisions, regardless as to their skin color or ethnicity or gender, that they, every human being is created in the image of God and therefore worthy of dignity and respect. And I am convinced that we as Christians are the only one who can truly talk about dignity and respect for all people because we're the ones who assert that all human beings have life and value because they're made in God's image. Therefore, we can actually argue with ideas and not disrespect a person. We can talk about truth claims and not go after someone's value. In this day and age, as Christianity becomes more and more marginalized, as evangelicals are looked at with more and more skepticism, we have to be the ones, friends, who can speak to the culture and to one another with grace and truth and wisdom for upbuilding. So grateful for how Ephesians 4 can be the testimony of the church. Let no corrupting talk come from your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ has forgiven you. 
See, if you've experienced the truth of the gospel, if you've seen as Peter describes that when Jesus suffered on the cross, that he was not reviled, as he was reviled, he did not return reviling in return. Yet there was no deceit found in his mouth. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly because he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By, your, by his wounds, we are healed. If that's been your experience, then brothers and sisters, we can talk with that same kind of wisdom. We can talk in trusting ourselves that God himself is sovereign over all things. We can talk and speak with the hope of the gospel, knowing that it is only the gospel that as people hear it, that they can actually respond to it. That we can talk to one another in the church and that people see something totally countercultural and they say, no one talks to me like that. That's not my experience at home. That's not my experience in my workplace, but that's the experience at Grace Pillars Church. And brothers and sisters, I'm so grateful for how that's true in our church, for how we can build one another up, for how our words matter and how we testify to the work of the Holy Spirit in us and through us as we see and celebrate good things that God is doing. So how's the Holy Spirit laying on your heart to apply this text? Are there any words that you need to repent of to somebody? Maybe even some that weren't meant any place that you cross the line? Do you need to, re to respond in forgiveness to somebody? And by the power of those words of I forgive you can restore a relationship. I say in marriage counseling all the time, there's two powerful phrases of life. I am sorry for, and I forgive you. Can we speak those to one another? Maybe to your spouse this afternoon. Are you prone to criticism, comparison, or complaining? Would you ask the Holy Spirit to help you overcome those sins, to give you victory there? How do you talk with those outside the church with whom you disagree? Do you feel that you must berate, embarrass, or demean a person? Even though they may be wrong, but are you able to assert that every human being is made in the image of God and can respect them and honor them as such? Have you ever wondered that every image bearer's greatest need is to be restored to the God in, whom, in whose image they actually bear? What are your social media habits? If you were on trial for being a Christian and all they had as evidence before the jury was your social media post, would there be enough for conviction? Is your habits and talk on social media becoming of a follower of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, our words reveal our faith. Our words reveal what's really going on inside of us. So since our words reveal our faith, watch your heart. What do you find as most joyful? What do you find as most satisfactory? How can you speak to others inside and outside the church? with that new heart that is trusted in, in Jesus and can and voice that to the world around. One of the great stories, I think, on this is the Apostle Paul. He speaks and says, I was an insolent man, a blasphemer, an enemy of the church. I cursed people. I had orders against them. I testified against them. 
But when God showed up in his life, when he beheld Jesus in his glory, everything radically changed for him so that he was no longer a blasphemer, but a proclaimer of the gospel. And brothers and sisters, we can use our words for gospel praise of Jesus and gospel proclamation of hope. That the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart would be acceptable and pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that you and you alone are God. We ask, O Lord, that our words would be marked with wisdom and boldness, that they would be marked with truth and that they would be seasoned with salt, that we might know how to answer every person, that they might see something unique in us that desires that, that our words would be words of life, especially as we speak on your behalf. We pray, Lord, that you would be working in us renewal and that your Holy Spirit would grant life to those who right now are dead. And we pray now as we sing your praises that those words would echo out the nations. In Jesus' name, amen.